0: pray with me. God, I thank you for uh, this night. I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for this image of Jesus, this image of Jesus predicting his suffering, this image of Christ suffering well, God. I pray that you would guide us tonight as we dig into these pictures of your son Jesus Christ into this scripture God God guide our hearts and our minds God I pray that you would uh, allow us to land upon your truth father Uh, I pray against the enemy and confusion and distraction tonight God that we would uh, come to the truth of your word uh, purely tonight father thank you for Jesus it's in his name I pray amen as Chad read, we are in uh, Mark chapter eight, starting in verse twenty-seven. Uh, we are images of Jesus. Part twenty, um, talking about focus tonight. Um, before uh, before we get there, one thing I, I want to begin to do from time to time is uh, is the this, this series is the images of Jesus, and and at this point, what's going to happen from from now until. Uh, the rest of the, of the book, Christ has been about teaching, he's been about doing miracles, he's been about uh, gaining popularity, gaining fame, gaining respect and notoriety, and, and showing his authority. Uh, overall, for the first eight chapters of the book, you can define it as Jesus uh, flexing his muscles, showing his power, showing his authority, and here is the turning point of, of the message, of, of the book. Of, of Mark he begins now to, to not worry so much about authority instead claiming his messiahship so we 'll talk a lot about that tonight and and as he does he talks a lot about suffering and so we 're going to see an image of suffering Jesus tonight and an image of of Jesus predicting his suffering and going into it intentionally uh, but before we do that I want to throw up an image I saw this this uh, sculpture at the art Museum of uh, a month or so ago, um, let me read you what, the, uh, what goes along. If you were to go to the art museum and, and see this sculpture, you would see this. Um, this is the Apostle John. The downward curve of John's mouth and the echoing arc of his eyes and brow let us know that the saint is in distress. Artists typically pro- portray John as the youngest and most emotive of Christ's followers. The sculpture was originally a standing figure at the base of the cross. It expresses John's grief-stricken response to Jesus's torture and his death. That image. Uh, if you get a chance to go to the art museum, uh, check it out. Um, it's it's fascinating and uh, and it really does that. The image doesn't do it as the justice that that it deserves. But the the picture here is is John is gazing upon. A suffering and not suffering, but a suffered and dead Jesus Christ and and the sorrow that overwhelms him. And so tonight, I think as we walk through this series titled Images of Jesus, trying to see pictures and moments of the life of Christ to try and connect with who he was and what he taught. It's it's good for us to connect with somebody else who was who was at the scene in the sorrow and the, the suffering and pain that they felt watching their savior suffer. So you can find that also online on the the St. Louis Art Museum's website as well. It's a, a, a better, more clearer picture that you can connect with the suffering, and I, I encourage you to do that. So if you have your Bible open it up to, to Mark chapter eight, starting in verse twenty-seven, uh, this message tonight is is pivotal. I don't I don't want to that word pivotal is is very intentionally chosen. This message is pivotal because sometimes we think of of pivotal meaning it's an important if if I say this message tonight is pivotal, what you might hear, what you might be communicating is that it's important. This message is important, but more than that, pivotal is that it, it turns. The life of Christ turns with what, what the messages, the the words that we hear and the, the words that are written by Mark in in these verses tonight. It turns. Jesus has been about flexing his authority and showing his authority and now it pivots, it turns and now Jesus is going to proclaim to the world, I am the suffering servant. A lot. Of, if you read any sort of, uh, if you read the book of Mark and you've got maybe a lot of Bibles have uh, commentaries at the beginning of books and it talks about what this book is about, more than anything, that phrase comes up. Jesus is a suffering servant in the book of Mark. And from now till the end of the book, Jesus is proclaiming, showing that he is suffering. And tonight he will predict uh, one of the first three times that he is will be suffering, uh, the suffering Messiah. So, it's pivotal for three reasons. First, because Jesus is called the Messiah for the first time tonight. The first time in the whole book of Mark, He is called the Messiah here. And we'll get into more in just a few minutes on what that word actually means. To call Jesus the Messiah. To call Jesus the Christ. Uh, Peter was communicating a very particular thing. And we'll get to that when we get to that verse. But it's pivotal tonight because... Jesus is openly called the Messiah. And second, it's pivotal because he is headed to Jerusalem. Every physical step that Christ will take that Mark records from this point forward is moving towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, if you don't know, was a place where Christ died. Jesus, here, the, the physical steps that he's taking is moving towards the place and the time where he will die. So it's, there's suffering and Messiah all over the rest of, of, of the book. And it, it's really kind of interesting because the Mark is 16 chapters long. And the first 18 ver- chapters are uh, the most of his work, most of his, his time spent on the earth. And the last eight chapters are dedicated to the last couple of weeks, the last few weeks of his life. And everything that happens from this point forward is about Christ moving both uh, spiritually and physically uh, and metaphorically to Jerusalem. So it's pivotal for that reason. There's very little else that's happening other than Jesus revealing his Messiahship to the world and to his, his disciples. And lastly, uh, it's pivotal because it's defining discipleship. And a lot of times we get lost uh, with this passage. Peter's proclamation that Jesus is the Christ is an, is, is a, a popular verse. And a lot of people have heard that verse and a lot of people quote that verse and a lot of people hold to it. But we miss the fact that Jesus is lining out and defining the cost of discipleship, what it costs to be a disciple. And we've defined discipleship throughout the course of this series and other series that to be a disciple is to pattern your life after the life and the teachings of another. So Jesus is laying out what it means to follow him. So it's important for us to connect with what that is. So let's get into into the scripture, uh, starting in, in verse 27 of of Mark chapter 8. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? I want to stop before we get to the, the heart of it. Nearly every other conversation that Christ had up until this point is reactionary. That is, somebody brings up a point, somebody comes to Jesus with a question, and Jesus responds to it. Here, in this topic... Jesus is the initiator of the conversation. He is guiding and directing the conversation that's happening. And remember, Jesus is very intentional. I know where I'm going. Every physical step, every metaphorical step that I take from this point forward is to get to Jerusalem so that I can die. Don't gloss over or, or pass through those words. Every physical and metaphorical step that Christ takes from this moment on, is so that Jesus can get to Jerusalem to die. And he knows that's where he's going. And so he begins to stop being reactionary in his conversation and be initiating in his conversation. Do you see the the, the pivotal nature, the importance of that? Jesus brings up, who do people say I am? They respond with this. And they told him John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He's just getting them going because this is the ultimate question that he wants them, He wants to ask them. Verse 29, and he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. I want to stop for a second and explain what this word Christ, what Peter is actually saying. So many times we totally misunderstand what Christ means. We think it's the, the last name of Jesus, but it's not. It's a title of Jesus. When Eric walked in tonight, I called him Mr. Uffman when in fact he's Dr. Uffman. Doctor is not his name, it's a title for him. Christ is not Jesus' name, it's a title for him. What is being communicated by Peter to the rest of the disciples and to Jesus is this, that he is the Messiah. The the actual Greek word there is Christos, and it means Messiah, anointed one, the Son of God. It's used 530 times in the New Testament. That's a lot a lot of times this word is used, and it's all about showing the, communicating this word that Jesus is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to is Jesus. And it's really important for us to understand that these people that are gathered around Jesus, the disciples, they're all Jews, and they are all have, have been taught this from birth, that God is going to send somebody like Moses. God is going to send somebody like Noah, God is going to send somebody like David. Only he's going to be better than all those people because he's going to totally and completely free us from our bonds. This is what they've been taught from birth. And now Peter says that one we've been taught we've been taught about that is going to save us from all this stuff. You're him. I believe you to be him. And that's what he, when he says Christ, I believe you to be the one who's going to free us from everything. I don't know who first said this, but. Uh, A pastor, a preacher, quoted this. He is the one that will bring freedom. He, meaning Jesus, is the true and better David, who will free his people and set up a strong and undefeatable kingdom once and for all. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who will intercede for the people of God and speak his words and lead them away from oppression and into the promised land forever. Jesus is the true and better Noah, who will save his people from the coming calamity and restore them for good. He is the true Messiah sent from God. And Peter gets it just right. He communicates to all the disciples and to Jesus himself, I believe you to be the one who is like the prophets of old, but is sent from God, the one, the only Messiah sent here to free us from our bondage. Verse 30, he strictly charged them, to tell no one about them. And then verse 31. This is where Jesus first predicts his suffering. In verse 31, he says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What's interesting is the, the group, the governing body that ultimately sends Jesus to death is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is made up of three groups. Anybody want to take a look at Mark 8.31 and guess what three groups are involved in the Sanhedrin? Elders, chief priests, and scribes. Those are the three groups of people that make the Sanhedrin. Jesus is predicting his death at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And this is verse 31 starts a new sort of chunk of scriptures from Mark 8.31 through Mark 10.45. There are three proclamations by Jesus of his suffering and ultimate death. And three times the disciples don't get the severity of it. They're confused by it. And three times Christ rebukes them for it. The other two times, I'll I'll share them with you. Mark 9.31, Jesus says, for He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Then Mark 10.33 says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. The next two chapters of the book of Mark are mainly about these three proclamations Jesus saying, I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and the religious leaders are the ones that are going to do it. And every time the disciples get confused and get it wrong, in fact, uh, after one of these times is when James and John, they ask him, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. And James and, John's, James and John's response is, Hey, Jesus, which one of us is cooler? Absurd. But our lives are, are filled with that. We come into encounter with Christ and then we we confuse ourselves with with totally irrelevant conversation. And that's exactly what happens here. But Mark 8.31 we walk into the wing of this museum that that begins for Jesus to to show his intended and necessary suffering I'm going to talk a lot for the for the, the rest of our time tonight about this word suffering and Jesus is intentional and completely understands that his suffering that he's predicted in mark 831 is both intentional and completely and totally necessary. And the primary purpose of the next two chapters is to explain what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, what it means for him to be the suffering servant, and what is required to be identified with him. That is what is required to be a disciple of Jesus. So many times in our life, we want to be disciples of Christ without the cost. Um, I want to show you quite possibly the, the greatest image I've ever come across in my all my years of, of uh, internet searching. Kyle, hit it. Isn't that beautiful? Dude, I was watching a golf tournament today. Tom Watson's very sad that he didn't come back and win. Uh, I looked an awful lot like this dude. <laughs> I hope not too much like this guy. So much of our lives, we... Uh, Go go to the next one, Kyle. We think of ourselves as this guy. Right? We're, especially in terms of, of our spirituality, we want to we want to study scripture and we want to pray and we want to go to church. We want to connect with community. We want to do all these things. We think that that we look like this guy. But ultimately, when we steer away, when we are, are trying to to provide protection around ourselves from suffering, we look an awful lot like this guy. Bring that one back. This is, when we try to avoid suffering in our lives, we are this guy. God is, is very intentional about putting suffering in your life because suffering causes us, it, it shakes us to the core of who we are and, and makes us realize and understand and it it shows us, it predicts what we're leaning on. If you suffer well now, it will magnify your joy later. Said by uh, a pastor of The Journey, a guy named Darren Patrick, said if you suffer well now, it will magnify your joy later. When we steer clear of suffering intentionally and don't seize all that it is for what God is trying to teach us, trying to shake us from our foundation, trying to shake us from relying upon anything other than God, we look like that guy. How many, we, if we look at our spiritual life, we would never want to look like this guy, some fat, lazy guy with a remote, completely disengaged from life. When we steer away from suffering, we miss out on all that God is trying to show us and shape us. And suffering shakes us free. It shakes us from what we lean upon. If it, it, it teaches us that we lean upon maybe our families. Maybe we lean upon our money. Maybe we even lean upon our churches. Maybe we lean upon our, our husbands or our wives. It, suffering shakes us because all of those things, everything on this earth, they're gifts from God, but they are not God. They are created And any time we lean upon something that's not God, God can and does and will bring suffering into your life to shake you from that, to teach you that He is the only rock that cannot change. It's not anything else. Everything else in your life can be taken from you. God can never be taken from you. And suffering shows us that, boils everything down to that. You can't lean upon yourself, lean and trust upon God and God alone. Study Bible says this Christ's death is necessary because the eternal messianic rule of God begins with atonement for sin, i.e., the sacrifice that God will bring about reconciliation between God and man. Christ's death is both intentional. I walk into suffering intentionally, Christ says. I'm walking into it intentionally. And it's also necessary. And as we relate ourselves, we identify ourselves as disciples of Christ. We both necessarily and intentionally walk into suffering. And if we're not, we're not getting it right. Mark 8, 32. And he said this plainly. That is verse 31 about I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. Those things he said plainly. Much, as, as we've talked about, as Dave and I have, have preached the, these first eight chapters of Mark, we have talked about how Jesus a lot of times speaks in metaphor, or Jesus speaks in code, or, or he, he speaks weirdly or oddly or not directly to large groups of people. And then he gets his disciples together and teaches them plainly. Here, in this passage, he doesn't use metaphor, he doesn't use weirdness, he doesn't use veiled words or veiled thoughts. Instead, he tells them plainly. It's vitally important to see that Jesus is speaking plainly because it's this is a pivotal moment for Christ. I've shown you my power, and now I'm going to show you that the powerful, authoritative man that I am. I'm going to go and intentionally and necessarily suffer. The second thing that this is important is Peter and his rebuke. Peter is the one who has just been publicly commended by Christ, but here in in verse thirty-two, Peter goes alongside Christ and and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Just nonsense written all over that. Peter rebukes Jesus. Moments before he rebukes Jesus, he says, You are the Christ. God chose you, created you, brought you to this earth to suffer and die for us. Yet I'm so profoundly arrogant that I'm gonna correct you. Complete nonsense. However, Peter is showing one of one of the strengths of Peter is his shepherding, his his fatherly nature. Peter, will, he will be the one, Jesus will say, I'm going to build my church upon you. You are going to be the one who's going to build and push and, and be the one I leave the keys to the kingdom with. Because Peter is extremely gifted in leadership. He's extremely gifted in shepherding and, and teaching and guiding and, and a father to all these people. And it's, and it's that strength of Peter that becomes his weakness here. Because he goes to Jesus and says, you know what, Jesus, You're Jesus. You're Christ. You don't have to suffer. And Jesus' response is a rebuke back of him. But ultimately, we want God to act just like Peter is acting. We want God to be our protector from suffering. Do you see that? We want Jesus to be our protector from suffering. Verse 33 says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why does, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Why does he do it? He does it because the words of of Peter are just like the words of Satan in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, the verses are going to be on the screen, but I want to set this up. This is before Christ has gone in his public ministry, this event happens. And notice how Satan tempts Jesus with worldly comfort to distract him from his mission. Matthew 4, 1-10, through 10. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Basically, Satan says, there is, you have a need in your life, you don't have to suffer if you don't want to, make these stones into bread and eat so you don't have to suffer anymore. Jesus says, that's not my purpose, that's not my purpose suffering i'm not here to try to make my life comfortable verse 5 then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of god throw yourself down for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and jesus said to him again it is written you shall not put the lord your god to the test Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Basically, I'm going to give you all this world, make your life rich and full of comfort and full of privilege if you fall down to worship me. But Jesus says, no, comfort and, and, and prosperity and gifts are not what I seek. Instead, I am walking very intentionally and very necessarily into suffering. And what has happened here in Peter, go back to it, verse 833, Jesus has, has said, I'm going to suffer, and Jesus rebukes him for it, and Peter speaks the words of, of Satan here. Jesus... You are Jesus. Use that power so you can be comfortable. Use that power so you don't have to die. And so much of our silly lives is that we want God to be our protector from suffering. We want God to be like Peter is trying to be to Jesus here. We want him to protect us from our suffering. And when he doesn't, we run from him. We get all worked up or we blame him for the suffering in our lives instead of rejoicing with Him for the suffering of our lives, so it's shaken us from our faulty foundation of relying upon something that's not Him. Or, we look for the sin that's in our lives. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you punishing me? But instead, we have to, as if we are true disciples of Christ, we have to see that God is very intentionally and very necessarily bringing suffering into our lives to show us that He is the one and only true Messiah that is the rock that will never change. Our lives are about steering away from suffering, and we act like Peter to our friends, we act like Peter to our family. We want to have happy lives, healthy children, well-balanced lives with good marriages and well-behaved children. We want our best life now and it's a lie from the pit of hell. Peter says this to Jesus, you can have your best life now, Jesus, you can have a life out suffering. And Peter's response or Jesus response is you are speaking the words of Satan. Don't steer away from suffering. It's a very necessary and very thing God has placed into your life. Jesus continues with this backward thinking here. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, It's interesting here, Jesus has been speaking specifically to the twelve disciples in this case. Now, everything that he's going to speak after verse 34 is to the crowds. He's speaking to the twelve, and now he says, Okay, everybody gather in. I want you to hear the rest of what I'm getting ready to teach. He said... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting because we read this from the perspective of 2009, knowing that Jesus Christ died on the cross. The disciples and the people that he's speaking to in this moment don't know that Jesus is going to die on a cross. Yet Jesus says to them, If anybody is going to follow me, and this is the cost of discipleship. If anybody is going to follow me daily, he must pick up his cross. and follow me. It's important to note, parenthetically here, that this language is not a traditional Jewish metaphor. Jesus is not using metaphor here. He's speaking literally. He's evoking an image of the minds of his hearers, a literal image that they, a man walking with grief, Walking towards his death, understand too. We've talked a lot that this is written to Jewish or Roman Christians in uh, in the area of Rome who could very very likely get burned at the stake and die a very gruesome, brutal death. So when when these people read these words, the Roman Christians who could be persecuted by Nero and die. When they read these words that you are to, to daily pick up your cross, it's it's a very real and very present danger in the lives of these people to, to connect this suffering. In our Western worldview, it's really hard for us to, to come and understand the depth of what's hearing here. Don't let these words skip past your mind. Self-denial goes against our nature, self-denial goes against our culture. But here, it's the instruction of Jesus Christ. I'm not done yet, but I want us to pray. Because this is massively important in our Western worldview to connect with the heart of what Christ is teaching. So, pray with me. God, I beg of you now, in this moment to, to connect our hearts, uncloud our minds, take away our Western worldview of suffering, take away our Western worldview of this desperate need to be comfortable, this desperate need to have. And Lord, may we be so completely focused on you that the things of this world would would pass god we'd be consumed by relationship with you not consumed with the the patterns and the culture of this this age god burn these thoughts into our brain allow us to to meditate on these words, to pray through these words. God, give us the ability to understand Your words. Allow us to fully swallow them and, and know that it's hard for us to truly deny ourselves, God. But without supernatural activity, God, we can't. Give that to us, God. Miraculously give us this ability to comprehend and then act upon self-denial, God. Help us to know that suffering is part of this life. We are in this life not for self preservation God, I thank You for Jesus and His perfect picture of this suffering. It's in His name. Amen. German theologian Heinrich Schleyer says this about Self-denial. This involves a radical denunciation of all self-idolatry. and every attempt to establish one's own life in accordance with the dictates of the self. So much of our lives are about self. The teaching of Christ here at the cost of discipleship as he is walking towards his suffering, he lays out, this is what it costs you to follow me. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's a ticket to a life filled with suffering and agony that's intentional. This involves radical denunciation of all self-idolatry and every attempt to establish one's own life in accordance with the dictates of self. Let that marinate in your brain. Meditate on that. Even as, as you leave here and meditate on it this week, that, that what Christ is telling us to do, what He's laying out as the cost of discipleship is disavowing everything that is about pleasing self. An unwillingness and desire to deny self, an unwillingness to deny self and our own desires to preserve ourself and steer away from suffering is making ourselves an idol. We are the ultimate, and our personal gratification is our Savior. When we don't deny self, our personal gratification and our personal wealth and our personal lifestyle is our Savior. And the result is what follows. For whoever would save his life will lose it. When your own personal gratification is your Savior, for whatever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of Me and My words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of Him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in glory of the Father with His holy angels. Three different statements of self-denial that Christ makes. The, the point of, of the of this passage is Peter saying, you are the Christ, you are the chosen one. Then Jesus saying, I am going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then laying out for us, for the Roman Christians in in, in Rome in the day and his disciples, these three things. This is what it will cost to follow me. Three things. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Second, lose your life so that I can give it back to you. And third is, what will it profit you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul. This is what Christ is instructing us to do. And this is what this life, this cost of discipleship is all about. This is Christ teaching. And again, He's moving His way to the cross to suffer and to die. So as we walk through this earth, as we walk through this planet, know that as Christ was teaching His disciples, that is, those who are patterning their lives after his life and his teaching, understand that as he is teaching his disciples, he is on his way to suffering. This gruesome and brutal death. So as we connect with our own suffering, know that Christ has taught us about suffering as he was going to suffer. Connect with the beauty of his suffering and allow your suffering to pale. Let's pray. God, I thank you from the depth of Of my heart. That you have. Been familiar with suffering, God. And you have shown us. Through your word and through your scripture. Through your life. How to suffer well, God. God, may we not shrink from, may we not desire protection from, may we not blame You for suffering, but instead suck all of the life from it. God, thank You for the suffering that You've given to us. God, I'm reminded again of of Your psalm, God. God, Psalm 51.8 Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God, they show us the beauty of who you are. They shake us from our self-idolatry. They shake us from our world idolatries. And show us that the only lasting, the only real, the only pure, the only true Savior is you. God, I thank You for the picture of Christ and His suffering. Well, be with us as people. Teach us. Give us the ability to suffer well, God. God, Your your Word tells us that Your Son endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him, God. May we suffer and deny self for the joy that is set before us. I thank You for Jesus and His perfect life and His perfect death and His perfect life. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.